Hi, and welcome to Just a GP. Today, you're here with your usual hosts, Beck and Charlotte, and our special guest, Danielle Mazza. We're going to start off with our usual highlight of the week, and Danielle has asked to go last, so we can have a bit of a chat about mine and Charlotte's first. My highlight of the week is I actually got out in the garden today and did some gardening and Danielle might be a bit jealous because I'm up in Sydney, but my spring bulbs have actually started to open, which is really exciting. We have some daffodils and some buds on our fruit trees and I'm trying to convince myself that that means that winter is over and that spring is just around the corner. Yourself, Charlotte, what's your highlight of the week? that resonates with me because I've got all my bulbs are popping through and it's always so exciting when those little top green things come popping through the soil and you know it's not going to be too long before you get the flowers but my highlight is a silly one I have two dogs two mini schnauzers and we haven't because of COVID had them clipped and they became sort of like these little round fat fluff balls and extraordinarily difficult to keep non-smelly and keeping them brushed they hated being brushed so this week the highlight was getting them clipped and it's ridiculous they're half the size and they look sort of like a schnauzer again whereas they were unrecognizable can I tell you so I think they're happy as well (laughs) I wasn't quite game enough to clip mine yet decided it might still be winter so I just went through and actually cut all of the mat out of my rather large dog and she is actually so much happier just for having her ears and other bits trimmed it's actually quite a nice thing to have done it must be uncomfortable I think having all of that thing but yes I'd gone and looked at a video and decided I wasn't going to go anywhere near doing the clipping (laughs) no it wasn't fun (laughs) and you Danielle what was your highlight or a special thing that happened this week so for me I've just had my dad come home from hospital so I guess for me it's that he's doing okay at home and is managing quite well after a bad fall. So I'm rather pleased that he's regained his independence and hopefully will keep going really well and get back to his usual self. Dad's a kind of fellow, if, if I give him fruit, he gives me jam. So it's been a bit difficult seeing him under the weather, but hopefully we're back on track now. Well, given that we actually had to cancel our previous date with you because he had the fall, Beck and I are really, really pleased to hear that news as well. So thank you. And remarkably quickly as well. He's done really fantastically well to get back He's so He's a very determined person and very stubborn. He's determined. He knows what he wants and he's going to get it. And They're great personality traits. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, not so easy to be the daughter of, though, always. Especially when you're the daughter and, and you know nothing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so what we were planning on titling this podcast was going to be Empowering Women with Contraception Choices. So Danielle, would you like to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are now, both through leadership and research, and just a little bit about you? Sure. So a bit about me. I'm a a Melbourne girl, studied at uh, Monash Uni and delighted to be back there now as the Professor and Head of General Practice and I've been in this role now for over 10 years and it makes me feel a bit old but nevertheless (laughs) and 
I'm also the director of the Sphere Centre of Research Excellence in Women's Sexual and Reproductive Health in Primary Care. And that's a great honour. We were successful in a grant application to the National Health and Medical Research Council to pursue this research. And I was delighted that they funded us because I think it was the third time we put in that particular grant. And, you know, you go up before the interview panel and you don't know how well they're across primary care and general practice. And then you start talking about women and reproductive health and contraception and abortion and preconception care. And I was delighted. We got a great hearing and we were funded and been on that journey now for just over a year. That's my current role. I do a lot of administration, kind of looking after the department. So what does that actually mean? So what have they funded you to do? And what's the benefit for me as a GP and for my patients for Sphere? I guess the the mission of Sphere is to improve the quality of care that's delivered around women's sexual and reproductive health issues in primary care. That's getting the evidence into practice and also improving access to care for women in Australia. So it's around quality and access. So all the research that we are doing, it's not necessarily clinical kind of research in terms of new drug treatments or stuff like that. It's health services research. So it's how can we deliver care better so that women get access to that care who need it particularly vulnerable women, and also that we are actually ensuring that when care is delivered in general practice, that it's evidence-based and really of a very high standard. So that's our mission. Our projects are really about supporting GPs and their primary care colleagues, pharmacists, practice nurses, to deliver better care for women in the areas of preconception care, contraception and abortion. So what dragged you into that area of research? It's been quite a long journey. I've always been interested in women's health and, in fact, I was previously the medical director of family planning in Victoria many moons ago. But before that, I did my thesis. I did an MD. I didn't do a PhD. I was, I was actually an academic registrar way back when, and I did my academic registrar project in women's health. I had just been to work in the country in, in Western Victoria and was shocked, actually, at how much violence I saw in women's lives as a a rural practitioner and the situation that many of the women that I was seeing were in because they were from a farming area and it was a very small community and they really had very limited options open to them to get away from the violence because they were so financially dependent on their partners and so isolated and the local police were friends with their partners and things things like that that happens in small rural communities. And, and I was shocked because these women were coming to see me asking for Serapax all the time and I couldn't believe the amount of Serapax that was being prescribed in that community and I thought, What's going on here? Why are all these women taking Serapax? And I guess I was 25 then and didn't really know much about the world. And now at the age of 55, I 
think Serapax was probably a reasonable approach to them when they had no other options uh, to manage their levels of distress. So I guess I was spurred on by that experience and also having done a term in my GP training in psychiatry and noting that as inpatients, all the women were depressed and all the men were psychotic. And that was kind of a big generalisation. But again, when I asked the women about their lives and I became very aware of the impact of violence in their lives and as being a huge factor in their mental health. So I ended up doing my MD. It was a survey of women attending general practice, asking them about their experiences of adult violence, intimate partner violence and child abuse and linking that to their rates of psychotropic drug prescription. And I guess that started me on my journey and I haven't looked back really. Sounds incredible. What I'd like to ask you is what is your big sparkly shiny goal at the end of this NHMRC process? What is your, this is what we are aiming to achieve? What would you like to walk away having done? I think women's reproductive health is fundamental to so many aspects of their life and their well-being. So for me, I would love that Australian general practice and primary care would be internationally recognised for delivering the highest quality care and that every pregnancy was a planned and wanted pregnancy and that every pregnancy that a woman had had the best possible outcomes for the woman and for her baby and for her family. And I guess that's kind of the overall goal. It's quite difficult to get there. (laughs) That was my next question. Do you think we're close? Uh, Not really, (laughs) unfortunately. I think we're slowly getting there, but I think one of the things that I'm learning on this journey is how many levers there are that need to be pulled and aligned to get things to work properly at a system level and at a practice level. And so I'm I'm really interested in, and my children's eyes glaze over when I start talking about this, but I'm really interested in implementation science and how you bring about change in professional practice and in people's personal behaviours and how much system issues actually impact on that. It's not just knowledge and attitudes, but it's actually the system as well. And I guess the benefit of having this centre of research excellence is that I'm working with a fantastic group of investigators from a whole range of discipline backgrounds, general practice, pharmacy, nursing, sociology, psychology, epidemiology, statistics, health economics. And we're trying to foster very strong links with all of the professional bodies and discipline groups and with government so that we are all working together because these are such complex issues that you really need that kind of broad input to be able to get everything to work properly. Oh, Danielle, you're speaking my language. I'll, <laughs> I'll happily come and do a swap with your children so you don't have to have the glazed over eyes because I got fascinated by the whole implementation thing with just trying to understand how I can improve what I do. 
And as you say, it all boiled down to systems. And what really fascinates me is that when you go and look at systems of care and how important that is, we don't actually get taught that in medical school. And that's a worldwide phenomenon that, you know, we're just expected to understand it. Yet, I read this really interesting paper that sort of talked about the fact that really only 10% of people think of in a way that's systematic. Otherwise, everybody just does what they do without sort of thinking about how it fits into a system or how we should design the system to actually work better. And, you know, and it is sort of quite fascinating that in terms of medicine, if we could actually be innovative and think outside the circle and do a bit more with our systematised care, we could actually do a whole lot better. Yeah, it's so interesting, Charlotte. I mean, you think about how medicine has evolved. You know, when you're a clinician, you just kind of have your head down dealing with the clinical issues. But I always found in in general practice that I felt like this tsunami was coming towards me and I wanted to stop it before it arrived. (laughs) And that's why I uh, turned to research, I think, to try and give me the ability to sort out the solutions to the problems that I was facing in clinical practice. And I think, you know, I'll show my political leanings here, but our fee-for-service kind of system means that we really don't have the opportunity to explore those issues and to work on those issues. And we also don't necessarily have very good structures to do that either. When you're a clinician in a practice, you're often too busy consulting to be able to have the opportunity to do anything else. And when those other activities are not necessarily reimbursed in any way or where there's no structure to undertake them, it's very difficult. But I think these issues are gaining more recognition and and slowly, slowly things are turning around. Well, certainly we've talked about this on Just a GP before, haven't we, Beck? I'm looking at sort of quality of care and that whole fee-for-service issue is around that it rewards volume. It doesn't reward value or quality. And so how do you get value-based care? And, and then that turns into that sort of very tricky conversation about, well, then you you reward quality, but what is quality and how do you define it and what does that look like? And so it is tricky, but I agree with you entirely. When you are a clinician being paid under fee-for-service, you just your nose is on the grindstone and you just have to just keep going and it's very hard to draw breath to actually sit back and go, well, how could I be actually doing this better um, and how could I actually enjoy it more as well as deliver better patient-centred care? It's interesting going through this experience with my father in, in an acute tertiary hospital in Melbourne and, you know, my dad was sitting back and he said to me, no one actually cares because what's happening is they're following protocols. So they're so busy following the protocols that they're not taking the time to care. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting seeing that perspective where attempts to drive quality have actually taken away from quality in in some aspects in those settings even though safety may have been improved by the protocols it doesn't necessarily follow that the patient satisfaction and perceptions of care have improved side by side. (laughs) 
But that's when you know, that whole issue about protocol-driven care versus actually having it about patient-centred sort of how it is perceived by them. And I think the UK system is very much, and that's where their problem arose, is that they looked at all of these outcomes and funded those and failed to see that it then became a box-ticking exercise rather than improving the experience of care for anybody and it also created clinician burnout so you created two big problems all in one go and so sort of just aligning funding with that is also as bad as just aligning funding with a fee-for-service and in fact you could argue from the Australian experience that fee-for-service is a better outcome than what the UK one was the trouble is that we know that there's a big variation in quality across a fee-for-service only model. Yeah. I actually wanted to take a step backwards and I've been thinking about this over a few of our podcasts and it's actually the word system. What are we interpreting the word system to mean? Is it the Medicare and funding and fee-for-service that we were just talking about or is it the fact that GP is largely until COVID bricks and mortar? Are you talking about education of your patients and your ongoing education of your colleagues. The system seems to be so much. You're right, Beck. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's all of those things. So systems are all around how the whole thing works together. And so it's complex and it's complicated. And now that you're a brand new practice owner, I think you'll start to see that there's a whole lot of stuff that sits under. It's not just about having a roster. It's not just about having, you know, a computer system, actually being able to have it so that everybody meshes in and everything works together is actually a whole multi-layered, complex, little growing organic beast underneath the surface. When I teach the medical students, I teach them about preventive care and I say to them, it's really, if you think about a manufacturing industry like a factory that's trying to produce a car, then there are all these component parts which all have their own machinery that need to be operated and optimised in order for that car to come out the other end of the the factory line. So you've got to think about medicine in the same kind of way. There has to be that focus on all of the component parts that build together to give you the outcome that you want. <laughs> and each of those needs a quality control kind of system, a look at safety, a look at reproducibility, <laughs> um, all of those kinds of things. But while still providing individualised care for that one person, it's a very different car to the one next to it. And there's all those variations. And, you know, you might think there you've got your identical twins, for instance, but one's got a, a husband who's got a job and an income and the other one's got a husband who's got severe depression and just lost his job and the child is sick. And do you know what I mean? So everything becomes completely different. That's the joy. Don't feel overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's the joy of it. I, I sort of love it. I love the design of it. But I do like that statement, which is that a system delivers what it is designed to deliver. So sort of taking that step back and looking at it is that understanding that you do only get out of something what it is 
designed to do. It won't do anything more and it won't do anything less, though you do get unintended consequences. And that's when you sort of, you the nuances of how you have to redesign or adapt and adjust. It's a bit like the telehealth items, for instance. You know, the unintended consequence of uh, trying to make telehealth more about being aligned with continuity of care and being done by the GP that belongs to a patient is that not every single person on Australia has been to their GP of choice face-to-face in the last 12 months. And how do we nuance that? What does it mean? And, you know, what adaptations do we do to make sure that particularly the socially vulnerable who nearly always fall through a gap get properly looked after? Well, as you know, Charlotte, I'm keen for that issue to be addressed in relation to the availability of uh, medical abortion for women because telehealth has for the first time enabled uh, women whose own GP does not provide that service to access it via telehealth with another provider through Medicare and I think that's very important for women who are in rural and regional areas especially and uh, vulnerable women and especially during COVID with so many women under financial duress and we know that rates of domestic violence have gone up enormously during the pandemic. So I'm hoping that the government sees sense around that and can can provide some kind of exemption. Well, yes, and certainly my hope is that by that sort of scenario being such an obvious sort of gap, that then we can have good conversations about how we go forward with designing a system that make sure that everybody's needs are encompassed in whatever gets adopted going forward post-September 30 because sort of now I sort of see as being a good opportunity to pilot where the gaps are and what are the exemptions that we need to make and how will those exemptions work to make sure that we don't make the exemptions so big they defeat the purpose of it in the first place. Yeah, I think it's been very interesting actually just because I'm in Melbourne and we're experiencing our stage three restrictions and the lockdown and these terrible case numbers. But what's been very interesting, I think, and very sad and has been the fact that people who are employed casually in low-paid jobs, who are very vulnerable, who uh, live in high towers and who live in you know, lower socioeconomic areas, uh, these are the places, you know, aged care uh, facilities, these are the places where we're getting the higher rates of transmission. And it just shows you that when the system goes under duress, in this case from the pandemic, what kind of falls out of that is the vulnerabilities and they become much more explicit when there's that duress. Yeah, it is. I think COVID-19 has been opening up all sorts of gaps in things that we do, as well as being able to create opportunities for us to actually make a whole lot of things better than they would have ever been before. But at the expense in the meantime of our you know, economy and certainly very vulnerable populations. I'm actually happy to move from here into our resource of the week. I think we've come to a natural pause in our conversation. And I think I'm actually going to jump in first with my resource of the week because it's exactly what we were just talking about, which is the MS two-step training or the medical termination training in that the website and the training available on the website is 
fantastic and you don't have to have even known anything about their medication before jumping onto the website to have a look. And having done the medication doesn't mean that you have to then choose to go on and be a prescriber, although it would be wonderful to have more prescribers all across Australia. But jumping on and being educated about this product and the side effects and how to use it and who it's appropriate for is actually um, a wonderful knowledge gap that can be very easily filled. And Danielle, what's yours? I think in, in the same vein, within the Sphere CRE, we have set up a, a coalition of stakeholders to address the concerns in women's sexual and reproductive health that COVID has, has brought to bear. And we've produced a number of consensus statements now that your listeners uh, may find useful that talk about solutions to policy and practice dilemmas that can be put in place during the pandemic and beyond to improve women's sexual and reproductive health. So I'd encourage people to Google Sphere and the Coalition and have a look on our website at the resources that we've got up there. Sounds amazing. I actually haven't had a look, so I will jump on myself. And yourself, Charlotte. So I'm going to direct everybody to the Black Dog website just because I think I was reminded in our conversation here today by how many people in our society and community at the moment have been really really affected by COVID and that's actually having quite an adverse effect on mental health and the Black Dog website has got some fantastic resources and particularly to help people working from home and some of the ways they can work in the community and they've also got some good links for people in the community to also participate in mental health research and I just think that's great so again it's just a reminder I'm sure everybody already knows about it but if you haven't looked at it recently it's worth going back and seeing what resources have been updated to cope with the extra needs of COVID. Thank you I always love a reminder to go and um, relook at old favourites it's a great one and thank you so much Danielle for coming along and speaking with us and for rescheduling to still come along even though it's been a rather stressful 2020 for, for you and for all of us so it's been a pleasure having you along. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks.